Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. There's a Native American proverb that says, in nature, we find peace and balance. Now, I think it's a fair statement to say that the issues of climate control slash protecting the environment slash ESG and any of the other ancillary issues that go along with that have been politicized to the point where it's really hard to know what to believe. What is a concern? What isn't a concern? What should be a concern? But I do think in spite of all that, there is an argument to be made that there is a balance. And as a person that's had animals in his home pretty much since I can remember, particularly dogs, you learn to respect animals and their role and their place on this earth. And so I do believe that these little beings are creations of God, and they have souls and a purpose just like human beings do, and that somehow there needs to be a balance in how we occupy this space. Now, today's guest is going to help us navigate this because in addition to that argument, there's also the tug of economic concerns, which I think is really where a lot of the confusion runs and where all the difficulties emerge from. Today's guest is Aaron Bott. He's a biologist and a doctoral student at Utah State University studying wolves across the America West, predicting wolf spatial and behavioral patterns on an anthropocentric landscape to promote human carnivore coexistence. Additionally, Aaron works with the Yellowstone Wolf Project, monitoring wolf spatial persistence and reproduction in the southwest interior of Yellowstone National Park. Aaron's deeply connected to the Mountain America West. His Mormon pioneer family settled there in the mid-1800s, and his heritage and conservation experience allow him to move fluidly and genuinely between different cultural values to find common ground. Aaron is currently employed as a regional manager for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, and my wife and son actually became acquainted with him when they did a tour of Yellowstone Park a couple of years ago. So it's my pleasure to welcome today to us, coming from Price, Utah, Aaron Bott. Aaron, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Thanks for having me. So I think the best place to start is if you can explain exactly what you do in terms that the average person can understand, that would be a good foundation, I think, for our discussion. Yeah, absolutely. In a nutshell, I'm a wildlife biologist. So I work with wildlife in the American West, specifically the American Inner Mountain West, where I grew up and my family's been here for quite some time. I had an incredible opportunity to grow up outside of Yellowstone, which through a long, complicated course of interactions with other biologists that inspired me, I was able to begin working with wolves eventually. I did my graduate research at Utah State University for my master's degree studying wolves in Yellowstone National Park. And I continued to work with the Yellowstone Wolf Project, studying wolf spatial presence and persistence in the park's interior. And I also am working on a doctorate right now, studying wolves all across really the lower 48 states, but most intensively in the American Western states, trying to focus on conflict resolution, figuring out how we can better coexist with wolves based off of their social patterns, their behavior, and how we use the landscape as well. So can you explain what you mean by, I think you said spatial persistence? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, that is a little bit complicated. 
But spatial just basically relates to the landscape and persistence, meaning how long does that animal or that pack of animals remain in a certain area? There's lots of variables that can influence an individual animal's habitat, and some influences can push an animal out. Some variables or resources can keep an animal in one spot for a long time if the conditions are favorable. So we were really interested in the southwestern corner of Yellowstone National Park because you have kind of this intersection of multiple agencies kind of coming together. You have Yellowstone National Park. You have Grand Teton National Park just a few miles to the south. You have Wyoming in the east and you have Idaho in the west. And each one of these agencies runs the show a little bit differently for wolf management. And animals, obviously, are they're oblivious to our own agendas and to our <laughs> political boundaries. And so looking at how wolves in this particular area navigate our complex landscapes, our political landscapes was what we were interested in. And the kind of resources that they're using in that area as well. Environmentally, it's different in southwestern Yellowstone National Park compared to northeastern Yellowstone National Park, which is more famous for its wolf research and its wolf sightings. There's a lot more prey species. The habitat seems to be more favorable for biodiversity in general. There's a lot more snow, a lot more wet, marshy meadows in southwestern Yellowstone National Park. So why are the wolves staying there and how are they handling I guess, our definitions of where they should and shouldn't be. So would you characterize yourself as a researcher? Yes. And yeah. then are you presenting findings, information, reports to these different agencies? Where do you fit into all that process? Yeah, so I wear two hats, actually. So I am a researcher and I study wolf behavior and their ecology on a human-dominated landscape. But professionally, I also work full-time for a state wildlife agency. So I work in wildlife management. And wildlife management is really where the rubber hits the road. So research helps us to understand what the real world is all about. And management is where we generate policies and create regulations to help us protect and preserve as well as manage wildlife according to our needs and what's best for the environment. So, okay, before I move on on that point, why wolves? <laughs> Great I mean, question. <laughs> I mean, they're cool. They say, what, all dogs come from a wolf and ours That's certainly right. are probably pretty close on that spectrum, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. To answer that, I have to give you a little bit more of a background about myself. So my family moved to the Intermountain West in the mid-1800s. We just hit our 175th anniversary this last year. So as Mormon pioneers, they came straight from Europe and they settled in central Utah and southeastern Idaho and into Wyoming. And for six generations, my family's been here and we've never left. And I have a very unique relationship with the landscape. I love it here. And my family has worked railroads and ranching and farming. And for a long time, I thought I was going to be a farmer for the rest of my life. And as I grew up and I went to college, I began to appreciate just how unique my situation was. 
that I lived in an environment where we had all of the species that should be there were still there in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. When I was five years old, wolves had been reintroduced. And I remember the hysteria that that caused. Of course, as a five-year-old, I didn't understand anything about the biopolitics. But I have family members who hate wolves and hunt wolves and family members who think that they're not so bad. And when I grew up, we had more and more conflicts with bears, actually. Wolf conflicts are fairly rare compared to bears. Bears can cause trouble. And I realized that I wanted to work outside for the rest of my life. And I admired a lot of the biologists that I had come to know as I grew up around Yellowstone. I wanted to be like them. And I thought I have a really cool opportunity to work with large carnivores. And one of the ways to promote a healthier system for biodiversity is to try and reduce conflicts with carnivores, right? That's kind of the overall goal is we people need a space and carnivores need a space. And I thought... I've got a great background, a lot of experience having grown up in the area. I'll try and work in large carnivore management and reduce conflicts wherever possible. And I was pretty tenacious in looking for bear research opportunities, but by default, a wolf graduate project opened up in Yellowstone and at Utah State University. And I ended up studying wolves instead of bears. And you love what you know the most about. And I've had the opportunity to work with black bears and grizzly bears, but I've had a lot more experience working with wolves. And so it's kind of what I've stuck with. No, that's awesome. So it sounds like you come also from a well-balanced background in terms of viewpoints. One hand, you do the work you do, but you've got family members who are on either sides of it. And growing up as a rancher, from what I do know of this topic, that's at least kind of where the baseline problems start. Is that a fair way to put it between the wolves populations and the ranchers? And then, of course, I guess it builds out from there. Yeah, I think it's important for everyone to understand that wolves have a tremendous historical distribution on the landscape. They used to live everywhere in North America, down through central Mexico, from the East Coast to the West Coast. In any one of the 49 states, you had wolves at one point in time, but they were systematically eradicated in almost all of the 48 states. As Euro-Americans began to expand westward, and my family was a part of this, they brought with them their own worldview, their own understanding of good animals versus bad animals and better animals versus lesser animals. And because we practiced agriculture, we removed a lot of native herbivores from the landscape because they competed with our livestock for grazing. So before we really began to target a lot of our carnivores, we were systematically mowing down elk and bison and pronghorn and deer. And I'm oversimplifying this narrative, but it was really to make way for our own worldview, the sense of manifest destiny. And when we finally settled the remaining West, then there was a lot fewer herbivores on the landscape, but still a lot of carnivores. And we'd replace the herbivores with a lot of livestock. And so livestock depredation or predators killing livestock became a serious concern for a lot of ranchers. And the government, big government and local government, got involved in predator eradication. So in 1915 to 1935 or 36, the U.S. created the Bureau of Biological Survey, which systematically worked to eradicate carnivores. And they were pretty effective. I mean, humanity has coexisted with carnivores for a very long time. But what made this particular story very unique is the implementation of poison. We got really effective at killing predators with poison. By using poison, we 
got rid of all of our wolves in the lower 48 states. We got rid of most of our grizzly bears. Grizzlies used to range pretty much everything everywhere west of the Mississippi, down through central Mexico. And we also eradicated most of our mountain lion population and other predators too, lesser, or I should say, mesopredators, smaller predators like coyotes and raccoons and skunks, etc. But those were able to take the bullet a little bit easier than the big predators. And so, yeah, we systematically removed all of our carnivores. And this was by the early 1900s. And then society's values began to change. And As a nation, we began to realize that some of those things that we were most proud of as a country, this frontier, this American sense of rugged individualism, it was quickly going away. And a lot of this was because we were destroying the environment. And so we had a lot of bipartisan push in the 1960s and 70s to protect our environment. And the Endangered Species Act was one of the things that came out of this movement. And in 1973, the Endangered Species Act was created. And in 1974, wolves were listed as being regionally extirpated from the lower 48 states. Now, wolves were still abundant in Canada and Alaska and also throughout Europe and Asia in some parts, but their historical range has been greatly reduced. And so we decided that we were going to start working to preserve habitat for large carnivores, and we would even work to reintroduce wolves to some of the historical range. And that, in a nutshell, came to a head in, in the 1990s when we reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone and into central Idaho. You mentioned Alaska, and we've spent some time in Anchorage over the years. And, and that, to me, it seems like, again, from a novice approach here, but kind of the model community in a way, in the sense that, I mean, I remember we were going to the airport one morning early, and there's a big giant moose in the parking lot of some restaurant. And bears, I mean, it just seemed like there was this kind of what you described, a coexistence where advancement or human footprint, there was a mutual trust and respect, if that makes sense, between the environment. It wasn't like the humans were taken over. <laughs> it was, there was a respect for the environment around and sort of, I guess, anyway... I observe that. So here's a question, because maybe you can explain both sides. There's economic benefits to the first phase of this, which I guess was benefiting people in their livelihood, being able to exist and not have their cattle and other animals killed that was helping them live. But as you go through the years, I'm guessing there was a shift. But then there's also a cost on the other side, right? Can you explain that? Because to me, that's kind of the interesting dynamic of this. I think whatever a person's view is, they're only going to be really familiar with the one side of it. But I think the two you need to see together. And I guess that's part of what you kind of do for a living. Yeah. And I'm happy you brought this up because it is important to realize that we as humans are a storytelling species, right? So we're dealing with a biological entity. We're dealing with a wolf, which is an animal on the landscape. It's got its own agenda. It's trying to survive. But we humans have competing values when it comes to wolves. And we're trying to decide how we can best coexist with them. And coexistence might mean we can live in harmony with them, or it might mean that we completely eradicate them in some areas where their interests conflict with our interests. And to really understand, I think, the dynamics of how we can coexist or how we have coexisted with wolves, it's important to realize why we picked Yellowstone and central Idaho. And originally, also, we had on the table northwestern Montana as the areas that we would restore wolves to the U.S. 
compared to their historical distribution, which included Ohio and Tennessee and California. Like, why did we pick the Northern Rockies? And it really boiled down to two reasons. We picked the Northern Rockies because the Northern Rockies still had a healthy and robust population of hooved animals, of ungulates, right? Wolves don't eat corn, so they're not going to do very good out in in Ohio, but they do eat elk and there are elk in Idaho and in Wyoming. And the second reason why we picked this area is because historically there's been fewer people in the Northern Rockies compared to other areas of the U.S. And we know that wolves and people butt heads. They conflict with one another wherever they coexist. And when wolves were first reintroduced, and even today, there's still a lot of resentment because the people who do live there, even though their communities are smaller, the people who do live there and who depend on agriculture as a way of making a living, they feel like their rights were ignored. Their voice was muted and they feel disempowered. They didn't want the wolves just like their ancestors had eradicated them. Our ancestors everywhere else in the U.S. had eradicated wolves, but the people in the Northern Rockies got the short stick. They were told that they would have to coexist with wolves that were coming back on the landscape. And again, I think that this, in terms of economics, I know that this is kind of qualitative versus quantitative. There's definitely a lot of symbolism that is applied to the wolf. And people generally don't have too many wolf problems when it comes to livestock depredation. Bears cause a lot more problems when it comes to eating calves and lambs than wolves. But if you are the one unlucky individual who gets hit by a wolf, then that hurts. You take it personally, right? We have compensation programs that can help you financially be reimbursed for any livestock that you've lost to a wolf. In some cases, it's pretty high. Like in Wyoming, it's seven times the market value of your lost cow. So those compensation funds are pretty robust and helpful. But again, it's a value system, right? It's not necessarily that the rancher hates the wolf. It's just that he loves his cows more. And it's not that the hunter hates the wolf. He just loves his deer and elk more. And again, wolf depredation is pretty uncommon. I work with a lot of ranchers that coexist with wolves, and we're trying to figure out ways to help coexistence move forward. And depredation by wolf is fairly rare, but when it happens, it's personal. I actually read something, because this was a thought that would have never occurred to me. A study or something that was done in some scientists, probably people you may know, I imagine it's a fairly small community, I don't know, but this rancher... His issue was that the calves that were killed by a wolf were killed in a way that he actually felt was, I don't know if offensive is the word, but it hurt his heart because he saw the animal from a different perspective, maybe ultimately providing family or income, but it was sort of inhumane, if that makes any sense. You think of these people on the side that struggle with these, at least somebody like me on the outside, that they're just very hard-hearted against the environment or have these views, but it's just a different perspective. Yeah. A lot absolutely. of us don't get. Absolutely. I think it's important to have a lot of empathy for those ranchers and those producers because they have a hard job and they don't make a lot of money. And their job is not eight hours a day. They're working long days year round out in the cold and out in the mud and generally a thankless job. And they are so important to our environment because without them, we would have urban development and urban sprawl in a lot of these Western lands that are devastating for the environment. And they're devastating for the wolf and for the grizzly bear and for the elk. Yes, the ranchers don't like the grizzly bears. They don't like the wolves. They don't even like the elk that come in and raid their haystacks and disrupt their grazing for their cattle. But they're willing to coexist with them. And again, I feel for them because they just have a lot of uphill battles 
and they then have to wear the mask of being the enemy to a lot of people who are commonly called the New West, right? It's kind of this Old West versus the New West. And again, at the heart of it all, and I think this is the greatest shame, is wolves are a symbol for a lot of people, unfortunately. And it's not fair to the animal, but for many people, the wolf symbolizes a threat, whether it's an existential threat or a realized threat. People see it as kind of the access of where the New West meets the Old West, and people feel bothered by that. So you brought up a really good point. Again, I don't think this is something that most people would take the time, at least I'll speak for myself, I wouldn't have, which is that if these ranchers lose their ranch, then at some point, there's always the risk of developers throwing up condos. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's a cost. So I guess the other question would be, what was the cost to the eradication of the wolves? Is there an economic cost on that side of it that maybe, well, probably clearly wasn't anything people really thought through or would have envisioned, but that would be the other side of the argument. Yeah. So we can kind of quantify this with environmental and ecological terms. Wolves are an apex predator in North America. And therefore, they're very important in helping the ecosystem function in a healthy way. We have what's known as the ecology of fear, which is often oversimplified, and I try and avoid oversimplifying it. But essentially, if you have a predator on the landscape, it's going to directly and indirectly influence how prey behave and how they utilize their own resources, such as grass and browsing on trees and willows. And by having a large carnivore on the landscape, you have this trophic cascading effect where the entire environment can be healthier. And a healthier environment equates to healthier living for humans, not just animals, right? And very often we've seen, for example, here in the Southwest with over-browsing by cattle, we've removed a lot of our herbivores, our native herbivores, we've removed our predators, and we've put on the landscape domestic livestock, which do not have this innate fear. They behave very differently compared to native prey species, and they sit and they eat and they eat and they eat and they over-browse the landscape, and you have degradation of the environment because of that. And your ranch starts to collapse because for a long time, it's been mismanaged. The public lands that the livestock are on are being mismanaged because you have missing cogs from the natural processes that would otherwise keep the habitat healthy. And we didn't realize this in the early 1900s, but we are now realizing this. And we're working and a lot of ranchers are working to try and figure out how we can rewild the landscape, how we can make it healthier. Because if the grazing fails, if your land fails, then your cows can't eat. And if your cows can't eat, you can't have cows and then you're out of a job. Right. So economically, everything is tied together. And having wolves or large carnivores, whether it be mountain lions or grizzly bears, whatever you have, all of that together really does. I mean, as cliche as it sounds, it's all tied together. It helps bring into balance a healthier environment, which then creates a healthier economy. And you know what I really appreciate about you and the way you're explaining these things? I start off in the introduction, and I'm not asking you to comment on this, but in my opinion, climate, environment, it's just been politicized to the point where I don't think most people have any idea where what's real and what isn't. And so the balance to me, which is where you're hitting this from, really just, it feels right. It makes sense to me because life isn't just a bunch of extremes. I'm sure some would say, well, you know, the wolves should be able to roam free. They have as much right, but it's really disrupting the balance of nature at the end of the day. I mean, that's what it is. And so 
Here's one, which I wasn't planning on asking, but kind of comes up. And if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. But <laughs> how does humans, mankind, whatever, people kind fit in? Because you're talking about the relationships, certainly between the herbivore, what happens if you don't have the plant eaters. And I know this is like the age old problem, but I'd really be interested on your thoughts on that aspect of it. Is that a fair question? Yeah, that just is. open up a can of worms? <laughs> no, I'll try my best to answer it. Humans are animals right? Very often we don't do ourselves the service of categorizing us as animals. And I think what an honor to be considered an animal, to be an animal that can live with other animals and evolve to live with other animals on this wonderful planet that we have. And I very often will make jokes about Yellowstone, where I do a lot of field work. And I say that Yellowstone is not a natural environment. It's an unnatural environment. Because in Yellowstone, humans can't hunt wolves in Yellowstone. But that's one of the only places on the globe where you can't hunt wolves in the world, right? So the real world is very different from a national park. And I do believe because we are part of this equation, because we belong here, because this is our planet, and I believe that we can be the solution. We don't just have to be the problem. And I believe that the problems arise when we try and manipulate or alter the environment to our own advantage without taking into consideration the land ethic that we should be employing, right? The term that was first coined by Aldo Leopold back in the 1930s, but we should be good stewards of the land. We need to realize that there is ground for ethics when it comes to coexisting with our own environment. But when we come in and we try and alter things dramatically, when we try and manipulate things, then we start to break the system and we become poor stewards of the environment. I 100% believe that we can coexist with wolves and with livestock and with grizzly bears and with elk. I believe that we can do that. It just takes different thinking. You can't keep trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. It just doesn't work that way. We have to reevaluate ourselves and say, what are we doing that is not working or is damaging our environment? And what can we do differently so that we can all profit? Okay, you mentioned, and I'm guessing this would probably be like the tip of the iceberg, that the wolf is a symbol. And that's probably sort of the beginning of the conversation of people's perceptions that need to be altered. So I guess the other question I would ask you is, what are the economic barriers to what you're talking about? Because I'm like you, I like to see the big vision. And anytime people tell you something can't be done, I mean, I'm the first guy that's going to get in line to see what we can do to change it, right? Right. But that would be the question is, what are the economic barriers that you see that get in the way of kind of the beginnings of this shift in perception? When it comes to wolves, just like all other large carnivores, it's not hunting and it's not ranching. We have to realize that there are complexities that come from coexisting with large carnivores. And I always say that the best reason for not having wolves on the landscape is because they are hard to live with, especially if you are a rancher. I mean, that's a valid reason. It's difficult and it takes adaptive willingness to change in order to coexist with them. It doesn't mean it can't be done. And once you make the change, life can go back to normal and it can be pretty easy. But again, I don't think it's the ranching and the economics of hunting even that are that are what need to change in order for us to move forward with harmonious wolf coexistence, if I'm going to be so bold as to describe it that way. It's really habitat, 
right? Wolves depend on habitat. They need space in order to roam where they're not going to conflict with our interests and we won't conflict with their interests. And the same thing goes with your elk and your deer and your pronghorn, these animals that migrate across the landscape. When we are developing our natural resources and our natural lands as quickly as we are, and I heard yesterday that it's a football field every two and a half minutes is lost in the American West due to human development. When we're hysterical about urbanizing wild lands, that's where conflict really comes to a head. And again, that's why I'm grateful for the ranchers and the livestock producers that are there that are maintaining these wide open swaths of land that can be used not only by livestock, but by wild animal populations such as wolves. And so there's a lot of money that can be gained and profited by individuals and by companies when it comes to urban sprawl and development of land. And I think that that is our biggest economic hindrance is at what point in time do we say we need to protect more habitat because that'll greatly benefit everyone. And I guess the last thing I'd say about that is generally ironic that the people who love wildlife and love nature are the ones that are trying to move closer to it and get their own slice of the cake, right? My family began it 175 years ago. You move out into the wild, build a home, and before long, you've got a city there. So I did an interview, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago that just posted with a gentleman that lives in Hawaii. His name is Charles Hugh Smith. And he's been blogging for, gosh, almost 20 years. But effectively, what he's describing or what kind of he co- place he comes from is sort of similar to where this goes, where you're leading this, I think, because at some point, we as a species, that's as close as I'll get to any scientific biological stuff on this talk, but have to start seeing wealth, success, our role on this earth differently than just simply accumulation. I mean, I even where we live down here in Southern Utah, I mean, and you probably see it in your area too up there. It's just, I mean, it's a beautiful area. These red mountains, I mean, it's awesome. Yet the development just keeps going out West and it doesn't seem to be any real limits on it or even a consideration for any of the things you're discussing. And so I think without sounding kind of, I don't know what the word is, but there's a kind of a collective awareness and a shift that needs to happen. And I'll tell you, Aaron, I think it is happening. And I'd be curious to have you comment on this. I see it, again, I'm dealing with people and their money. That's what I do for a living. But I've seen this move to where people are really, in their way, trying to simplify things. That somehow the attraction of having a property in five different states and all this stuff, it's a distraction. It complicates people on what's really important. So I think there's a shift. I don't know that it's happening as quickly as maybe a lot of people would want it to. But I guess maybe that would be the question. You mentioned the reinsertion or repopulation of wolves that happened 30 years ago that impacted you. Has that kind of been a trend? I mean, are you starting to see some shifts that actually make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It does make sense. And it's also heartening to hear your stories. And I'll say that one of the most important and significant telltales that there's a change in the wind is the fact that we're having these conversations. I mean, you've got a finance podcast and you're talking to a wolf biologist and we're discussing these issues and we're bringing awareness to a larger audience. And Yeah, we do have to act fast because the hyper-urbanization of our lands, and it's not just in the American West, it's all over. It's happening quickly, and so we need to respond quickly. And I think, too, that we need to bring people to some level of awareness that nature and the environment and habitats can be beautiful everywhere. Yellowstone is celebrated because it's the last temperate, or I should say the Yellowstone ecosystem, is celebrated because it's the last temperate 
intact ecosystem on the planet, which means that it's got everything that should be there is there. And it's the last of these areas on the planet. And I keep thinking, why is it the last? Why, instead of just focusing our efforts on trying to protect the Yellowstone ecosystem, we should be working in other areas to try and generate new quote unquote, Yellowstone ecosystems. And people who want to come out here to the West, they want to come to the beautiful parks in Utah. They want to go to Yellowstone, where we have grizzly bears and wolves and elk, etc. People need to realize that there's beauty in their own backyards. And we should be working hard to rewild some areas in the East. We should have local pride as well as curiosity to go exploring in other necks of the woods. And I'm not saying that we have to reintroduce grizzly bears and wolves. Some of the realities are just too complicated for complete reintroduction of certain species and coexistence with certain species. Nevertheless, I think that we can do a lot to advocate for the environment in our backyards. It doesn't have to be removed from us. It doesn't have to be a vacation destination. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. And you kind of just put it in my mind because where we live, Every once in a while, you'll see deer. Not a lot, but they'll come down to where we are from the mountains. And it's just cool. We have this family of foxes that lives down in this little canyon kind of across the street from where we are. And even when we were living in Orange County in Southern California, you'd have every once in a while, you'd see the raccoons or a possum, get up early enough walking the dogs. You just, you come across and... There's just something, again, this is just simple, but it just seems like there's something right about it. There's something right about having those critters, (laughs) those animals as a part of whatever the environment is. Let me ask you this as we're kind of winding up here, a couple things. One is you mentioned wolves. I know I've heard of like similar issues with deer, maybe in the Northeast. So are there other kind of areas like this that are having these same discussions or challenges, however you want to put it? Regarding coexistence or regarding, yeah, it's wild. I mean, again, I mentioned elk earlier, but I know Cedar City fairly well. I was over there doing mule deer captures last month. And it's funny how people can get pretty upset about sharing their backyards and their gardens with wildlife, right? And coexistence is challenging anywhere you go. And I think that the reason why it's challenging is because too often we have our own paradigms. We have our own agendas that we try and bring with us to our new landscape or to our new environment. And I mean, Kentucky bluegrass rye mix lawns that we're putting all over the Southwest are not conducive for the arid conditions that we're living in. And yet we all want our grasses. We all want our green lawns. And the same thing can be said of wildlife where, I mean, you can't ranch the way your grandpa ranched if you have wolves in your backyard, right? You have to do things differently. You got to pick up new tools. You got to try new things. You got to have the bandwidth to be creative in order for coexistence to be realized. And the same thing can go with urban deer, right? Where do you expect the deer to go if you've developed their habitat, their prime habitat? Too often, I mean, you see this problem a lot, but especially in Utah along the Wasatch Front, people see mountains and they think, oh, that's where the animals live. But they don't live there for the same reason that people don't live there, right? The conditions are not great. The animals want to live down in the valleys where they can eat grass and get fat and the snow isn't as deep and it's not as cold and the temperatures aren't as extreme. But that's where we decided to live and we built our urban sprawl all across the valleys and then we get upset when deer come into our backyard. But if we're going to have deer in our backyard, if we're going to have deer along our roads, then we need to think creatively about creating wildlife crossings for animals to get from one side of the road to the other. We got to think creatively about protecting your tomato plants from deer, from bears, from etc. So again, we can't try and manipulate everything. We have to be willing to try new things and adapt to our environment rather than trying to make the environment 
around us adapt to us. In listening to that, because I've had this kind of thing in my brain, it came up on another podcast. It was from a movie, Moneyball, but it's Adapt or Die. I mentioned this before, but the types of changes that aren't just like you mentioned, throwing a bunch of poison out, that's lazy. I mean, aside from not having any force, that's just a lazy, and the things you're talking about require work. And I think any true shift is going to require effort. And anyway, I don't know. I listen to you and I think about, gosh, you really are. And I wish people like with your voice were here getting to the people that seem to be the ones that are making these decisions because it's always like the rational person that's got the foot in the trenches and is doing the work that really understands what's going on. And yet they're the ones that seem to be fighting to get some kind of a voice that's heard. Gosh, there's so many questions I want to ask, but I guess maybe the last thing I'll mention to you is, or ask you to share with the listeners is some things that you've seen that really are showing you tangible signs of optimism as it relates to this. Is that a good way to kind of round up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I love talking to people. And I think that we live in an era where we can get all of our information secondhand. We can listen to podcasts, you can watch YouTube videos, you can read the news. But really what boils down to promoting civil discussions and being humane towards one another is to have conversations. And I have had the opportunity to have great conversations with livestock producers who share their landscape, their backyard with wolves and with bears, with mountain lions. And they come to me and they say, hey, what are you doing with Utah State University to create new tools to help protect our calves? Like we want to be a part of the solution. We're not going to go anywhere. That's our plan is we want to keep operating. And we realize the wolves aren't going anywhere. So let's be creative together. And likewise, there's the other stereotypical side of the spectrum where you have environmentalists, people who are coming from the coasts into the Intermountain West, and they have an idea of what they expect to find. And they're willing to listen to reason and to understand that, man, I get it. I don't like the idea of trophy hunting. And therefore, I don't like the idea that You can go out and hunt wolves, but I understand that there's perhaps a reason to it. It's not just pure hatred and willing to understand and to put yourself in the shoes of another person. So having that kind of, whether it be sympathy or empathy, being able to try and have civil discussions. And to me, that is the most heartening. I mean, again, too often we look at stories that are told secondhand. But when we actually get involved, you're exposed to some pretty neat people out there from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of walks of life. And I think that people generally want to be good and they want to try and be a part of the solution. I agree. And it's nice to hear you talk about civil conversations (laughs) because the first thing that comes to my mind is, wow. I mean, anyway, we're giving this image everybody's so divisive, but when you really get down to it, I think you're right. People do want to work together and I think their hearts are usually in the right place. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you to have a conversation or just get more information, what would be the best way for somebody to do that? I have an Instagram that I'm not particularly active on, but it's my name. It's C underscore Aaron Bott. B-O-T-T. And you can also find me, I am, like I said, a doctoral student at Utah State University. So I've got a profile there with my student email. You can contact me that way. And yeah. Good. So longer term, last thing, are you anticipate staying connected to the University of Utah? Or what's kind of the next big step as you see? Or are you just kind of going with where it takes you? Well, no, I would like to be in a position where I could make broader decisions for wildlife management. So like I said, I'm currently employed by a government agency. I'm working as a biologist and I'm 
a student full-time at the same time. So I'm a busy guy. But with my degree and with my education, I would hope to, yeah, to work as a carnivore project specialist for a state and try and move reintroduction or coexistence paradigms and programs forward. Well, it sure would be refreshing, again, my opinion, to see somebody like you making public policy. So, Aaron, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time today, and thanks so much for joining me on Upthinking Finance. Hey, thank you for having me. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC, Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.